Well, as I said, we are starting a two-part series now on the topic of raising children and what the book of Proverbs has to say about this crucial topic. To underscore the importance of children and the role of fathers, I want to spend just a moment considering a very popular social movement that has really rocked this country in the last year. As you all know, the Black Lives Matter movement has enjoyed substantial growth and popularity uh, in the past year. From its start in 2013 to 2019, Black Lives Matter really was a localized movement and really was uninfluential in American politics. But within a few months after the death of George Floyd in May of 2020, while he was in police custody, the Black Lives Matter movement quickly grew to become the most influential political movement in the country. At one point last summer, 67% of polled Americans said that they favored the mission of Black Lives Matter. Now, this movement claims to have as its its reason for existence, the pursuit of justice, a mission that few would want to oppose, which is why so many are in support of this movement, even within the evangelical church. But within reality, the Black Lives Matter movement is anything but just. One of BLM's central objectives, as they themselves described it in a document that is now hidden in their what we believe statement calls for the destruction of what they call the western prescribed nuclear family structure their statement reads we disrupt the western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Now, in the crosshairs of BLM's assault on the traditional family are two things in particular. Number one, as other statements in this What We Believe document stated, BLM is is diametrically opposed to the necessity of marriage being heterosexual, monogamous, and lifelong. And then secondly, it becomes very evident through the teachings of BLM and its founders and key spokesmen and women that they take aim specifically at the leadership role of a father in a family. Now this effort to attack the family is nothing new. It certainly isn't an agenda that arose only in 2020. You can trace it to various movements in history. Let me just, for example, take it back to Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in their infamous work, Manifesto of the Communist Party. In that manifesto, they infamously called for the abolition of the family, because for them, the family represented a, a, a competitive authority that competes with the authority of the state. They found it to be abusive, 
and so on and so forth. In fact, the Russian Bolsheviks attempted what Marx and Engels had suggested. And so, shortly after the revolution of 1917, the Russian Bolsheviks attempted to significantly downplay traditional marriage and encourage open sexual relations. They downplayed the entire concept of illegitimate children. In other words, children born out of wedlock because now wedlock really didn't matter. Divorce was made quick and easy, and men and women began to carouse in these dormitories where they attempted to eliminate families and just have people living together. The men and women would carouse, and the state now became the parent of the resulting offspring. This was the Bolshevik idea of utopia, but as history would go on to show, the experiment resulted in great human injustice and suffering, particularly for children. You see, what happens when you have these movements, socialism, communism, BLM, and others, that attack the family as defined in Scripture, and particularly that attack the role of the father, his involvement, his leadership in the home, the result time and again is injustice. The consequence is suffering. And we can say this, that what BLM and other socialist movements demand as necessary for true justice is actually the greatest perpetrator of injustice in our modern world, and it's the fatherless home. And we all know this. Statistics are crystal clear from all angles on this particular issue. For example, a 2020 U.S. Census Bureau that studied the problem of fatherlessness said this, there is a crisis in America. 18.3 million children, one in four, live without a biological step or adoptive father in the home. Consequently, there is a father factor in nearly all of the societal ills facing America today. Despite what you hear on the news as being systemic injustice that is inherent in all kinds of government institutions, we must realize it's the biggest injustice our fatherless homes. That is the problem that has created so many social ills in our culture. Another statistic from the the Census Bureau, in 2014, 17.4 million children lived in fatherless homes. This uh, amounted to almost a quarter of all American children, 23.6%. In 2017, the number of fatherless homes in America had increased with 19.7 million children living without a father, and that is now more than one in four children live without a father. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has stated this, quote, statistics on fatherless homes indicate that many of these families in the U.S. live in poverty. Female-led homes with no spouse present had an alarming poverty rate of 476 percent in 2011, more than four times the rate for kids living in families 
where both parents are present. Now, the problem today is that if you, if you come from a, a home that has both parents in the home, you are most likely not to be in poverty, but the response is you're a person of privilege, and that is in, in injustice. So rather than challenging the whole problem underlying fatherless homes, now it's stated that father-filled homes are actually the problem, they're privileged, that is, that is inequity, and so something must be taken from them to give to the fatherless homes so that the fatherless homes can continue, but not in poverty. It is an inability to correctly, and may I even say it's a malicious inability to correctly identify the cause of real injustice. The U.S. Department of Justice has stated this, seven out of ten youth that are housed in state-operated correctional facilities, including detention and residential treatment, come from a fatherless home. So in those detention centers for youth, 70% come from fatherless homes. The Census Bureau also states this, research shows that when a child is raised in a father-absent home, female children are seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. So if you have young girls in a home without a dad, they are seven times more likely to become pregnant as teens than if they have a dad at home. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says this, quote, 63 percent of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, five times the average. The U.S. Census Bureau has also stated this, 57.6 percent of black children, 31 percent of Hispanic children, and 20 percent, 20.7 percent of white children are living absent their biological fathers, and that number has only grown over the past eight years. That was back in, uh, well, that, the statistics are back in 2012, and these numbers have only increased uh, over the past eight years, the number of children living without biological fathers. Indeed, this, the greatest social illnesses and injustices inflicted on society, the greatest example of this, the greatest cause is a fatherless home. Such homes are the greatest causes of poverty, the greatest causes of criminality, the greatest causes of abuse, suicide, obesity, illiteracy, teen pregnancy, and depression, hands down. No question about it. And that's why when you have so many movements today claiming to fight for social justice but absolutely ignore this problem, you can know that they're all a crock. This is the problem, and standing against this tide of biblical wisdom, standing against this tide is biblical wisdom, and Proverbs in particular. Proverbs points to the leadership of the father as central to the success of the child, to the success of the home, and to the stability of society. 
And considering the intensifying attacks on fatherhood today, it's important that we spend some time looking at the book of Proverbs and seeing what it has to teach us about fathers, about successful leadership in the home, and and about raising children. What we're going to do over the next two weeks is look at ten lessons on raising children from the book of Proverbs. We'll start with as many we can get through tonight, the most five, maybe only four, and then we'll look at the rest next Wednesday. Ten lessons on raising children from the book of Proverbs. Number one, a father's successful leadership begins by instilling in his children the fear of God. This is what Proverbs teaches us, Proverbs teaches us about fathers in the home, their fundamental responsibility. Your duty, if you are a parent, if you're a dad in particular, if you are a soon-to-be dad, you have to recognize that your fundamental responsibility is to instill in your children the fear of God. That is what Proverbs calls you to do. Now, what does it mean to fear God? Well, we've looked at this already, but let me simply define it as this. Fearing God is to relate to Him with reverence and awe, submission, and adoration. The fear of God describes, in this case, a kind of attitude, an attitude, a relationship of the heart toward the one true God. And that relationship is marked by reverence, by awe, by submission, by adoration, by love, by faith, by trust. The fear of God encapsulates all of these attitudes It is a profound idea as we've already looked at as we've studied this book. And as we've noticed within the book of Proverbs itself, this concept of the fear of God is the most basic component to a successful life for any individual, but particularly it is for a child. A father's most fundamental duty, therefore, is to communicate by word and by deed this fear to his children. If you're a dad, your number one duty, the best thing that you can do for the sake of your children more than anything else is to communicate through word and through deed this fear of God to your children. Let's look at a couple of Proverbs that communicate this. And they come through in how Solomon himself approaches his own son. For example, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Solomon says this, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, if you will make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding, For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. This is Solomon's most basic concern for his son. Receive my words, treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive, and then you will discern. Then you will understand. 
the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 3, the same idea is stated there in in that chapter as he again begins in verse 1 saying, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And he goes on through some very memorable statements there to to verse 7 when he says this, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. And the most basic level Solomon is concerned about his son's attitude to Yahweh. How his son would relate to him and whether his son would be marked by this attitude of awe and submission and adoration and reverence. And if he would, if he would relate to the Lord in that manner, it would be the key to his success. Proverbs 14 verse 26 says this, In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And his children will have refuge. Now there is a question here about the pronoun his. Is that referring to the Lord? And and some might take it that way, that the pronoun refers to the Lord. And so the idea here is saying that in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and the Lord's children will have refuge in it. But there is very good reason actually to take this as not a reference to the Lord, but to the Father who fears the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And for the Father who fears the Lord, His children will have refuge. And, and at that, in that age, the concept of refuge and stability was was so very important in life. And we must look at it that way for us as well. That when the Father fears the Lord, His children will find in the Father's fear of the Lord their own refuge. There will be that sanctifying effect as He by word and and by deed demonstrates His love and adoration and awe and submission to the Lord. And that will make it so much better for the children. Because he himself fears God, his children will be able to find in the home a true refuge. His fear will create a sanctifying effect under that roof where the children will be safe. Fathers, You must lead the way in communicating this fear of the Lord to your children. Obviously, that means first and foremost, you need to know what it means to fear the Lord. You need to know that attitude of reverence and awe, that attitude of love and adoration, so that it's not just something that you speak of theoretically, but when you do speak of it, it comes from the depth of your experience. And your children understand that when you speak of it or when they see it, they know it's the real thing. It's not just an imitation. It's not just what you put on for Sunday. It is your real life. And this is not just Old Testament 
instruction for fathers, this is carried through into the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says this, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, even a the, the older versions translated this, bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That verb for bring them up is a very rare verb there in Ephesians 6 verse 4. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. It's actually found in Ephesians 5 verse 29, just a few verses previous to this verse where Paul writes, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it He nourishes it and cherishes it. The concept of nourishment. We all nourish our bodies. Some of us a little more than others. We, we, we nourish our bodies. We, we love good food and we're motivated by that. Boy, we'll even get up and work a hard day to enjoy a good steak at the end of the day. We nourish our bodies. And Paul takes that very same concept and say, says, well, you know how you nourish your body. You must nourish your children the same way. You as fathers. And you do so in this spiritual instruction by bringing them up, nourishing them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Charles Bridges, in his commentary on Proverbs, touches on this important priority and sadly, and remarks sadly about the real state of affairs, even in his own day, when he said this, quote, most people deal with their children as if they were born only for this world. They educate them for time and not for eternity. But if you educate your children for eternity, you educate them in the fear of the Lord. But if that fear is absent, if that's not part of your instruction, your conversation, your life, with your children, all you can do at best is prepare them for the 60 or 80 years that they will have in this world. C.H. Spurgeon said something similar when he said this, Alas, if our children lose the crown of life, it will be small consolation that they have won the laurels of literature or art. Some of you at least during the pre-pandemic times, would, would drive your children all over the place in order to be involved in sports. Baseball, football, volleyball. You drive them across state lines in order to, com- to compete in competitions, and you would take them all over the, 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 the place in order that they might get that scholarship to get into the university. Now, consider how much investment you made to get them that scholarship, or in the hopes of getting that scholarship, or perhaps they had nothing to do with the scholarship, but it's just because you love baseball. But look then at the amount of investment you make in the instruction and the fear of the Lord. Does it even even relate or equate? And we have to take inventory of our lives and ask ourselves the question, In light of all the hard things we do to see our children's success in the things of this world, in literature or art, how much more should we not invest in seeing that they would come to know and love God? Number two, a father's successful leadership assumes the depravity of his offspring 
This is so very important. A father's successful leadership assumes the depravity of his offspring. Proverbs does not affirm that children are born good, innocent, or clean slates. Now, that is something that is common both in ancient wisdom and in contemporary wisdom. It is common to look at children as if they are little angels, or perhaps, at worst, neutral, innocent, blank slates. But Proverbs does not do that. It does not consider children to be good. Moreover, Proverbs does not identify environmental factors as the primary cause of a child's foolishness. Instead, Proverbs assumes that children are all born in sin. And it it, it assumes this especially through its use of the phrase, his own way or his own eyes. And how the book of Proverbs treats or describes the child related to those things. His own way, his own heart, his own eyes. And every time that it does, it's always negative. A child's own way, a child's child's own eyes, a child's own heart is always negative. Is always something evil in the book of Proverbs. Notice how this is brought out by Solomon, even chapter 3, verse 1 and 5. He says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And then he says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Why is that? Solomon recognized the depravity of his son's heart. Do not lean on what comes from within. Do not look inside yourself, Solomon says. Because he knows that inside is depravity. He says in 19 verse 27, My son, cease listening to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. The idea there is that automatically, as soon as the external source of divine knowledge, the external source of instruction, once that is rejected, there is an automatic response An inevitable response, and what is that? Straying. Straying. Proverbs 22, verse 15 says it even more vividly. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Or Proverbs 29, verse 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame. To his mother. Now, these verses are all pointing to a very important reality that inside, that in the child's heart, there's depravity. It references what we know elsewhere is the doctrine of total depravity. It's found in texts such as Psalm 51, verse 5, where David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me identifying the whole fact that even the procreative act is is corrupted by Adam's original sin. How do we understand this doctrine of total depravity? I like what R.C. Sproul stated when he defined it this way. Quote, what is meant by the concept of total depravity is not that man is wicked as he possibly could be. Bad as we are, we can still conceive of ourselves doing worse things than we do. 
Rather, it means that sin has such a hold upon us in our natural state that we never have a positive desire for Christ. You need to understand that. We need to understand that about our children in and of themselves, apart from divine regeneration, apart from coming to know the fear of God, in light of their depraved heart, they will never have a positive desire for Jesus Christ. So when you pick them up at the hospital and bring them home, you must look in their faces and realize of themselves, left to their own ways, these children will never have a positive desire for Christ in themselves. They will not automatically love, adore, submit, and worship Him. To paraphrase the words of John Calvin, we must understand this, quote, your child's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. When they are placed in your hands for the first time, understand that heart is an idol factory. And it is essential that any father, in step with biblical wisdom, it's essential that every father must operate upon this assumption. Yet many fathers seeking to justify their lack of dedication to the hard work of raising children, or perhaps those fathers who are too content with the pseudo-wisdom of this world, convince themselves that their children really aren't that bad, so they really don't need my attention. They'll be okay on their own. And so I can ignore them. I can let them go their own way, and they'll get their act together. Vadi Bachman said this, Rare is the man who views his discipline and instruction of his children through the lens of the gospel. For the most part, our approach to parenting resembles more closely that of Dr. Phil, Dr. Spock, or Dr. Oprah. The reason? Our theology. Most men are completely unaware of the impact their theology has on their parenting. This is a fact that cannot be ignored when it comes to equipping family shepherds. Failure to address such fundamental issues will eventually lead to great harm. As family shepherds, we must have a right view of our child's problem if we are to have a right view of the solution. End quote. Left to his own way, a child will always choose convictions and behaviors that will be consistent with the sinful nature. And this realization, coming to terms with our children's depravity, will set us on a proper path of what we can call gospel parenting, where our central focus is not just in trying to achieve some kind of behavior modification, as if all we need to do for our children is teach them a couple of skills, some habits, a certain way of addressing people, and how to uh, do these basic things in life and everything will be okay. No, by understanding the doctrine of total depravity and its relationship to our children, it will teach us, it will force us to have an approach to parenting that looks beyond behavior modification, looks toward confronting the heart of the child. And that's what 
we read in Proverbs, even Proverbs states in Proverbs 23 verse 6, it really gets down to the, to the heart of the issue where we read this, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. We're after the heart. We're not after 4.0 students. We're not after those who can get into the Ivy League universities or those who get, the, get on the honor roll and so we can put the bumper sticker on our car and who, who may have that really nice voice and can sing very well or do so well in sports. That's not ultimately what we're after. We, we recognize that those things are easy, really. What is the heart of the matter is their depravity. And so our gospel parenting will be dedicated to revealing and explaining to the child the child's depravity. And then it will also include leading the child to the fear of God. Leading the child to turn to the Lord as the only hope or rescue of a sinful heart. We must understand the doctrine of depravity and must think of this and, and think through it carefully so that that doctrine impacts how we parent. Number three, a father's successful leadership disciplines his children for foolish behavior. This is part of it. You see, when we understand the doctrine of depravity, we see that it has direct implications to the exercise of discipline. Because the child is a sinner, discipline is needed for several things. It's needed, number one, to protect the child from himself. Number two, it's needed to protect others from the child. Number three, it's needed to point the child to his need for redemption. So understand this, when, when you do not exercise discipline on your child, you are, you're doing the, the, the exact opposite of these three things. Number one, you are allowing the child to, to inherit the full onslaught of, of all the damage that will be done to him personally because he was never disciplined. Number two, you don't discipline your child and you are deliberately refraining from protecting others from your child's depravity, you're culpable. And number three, you will not convince your, need, your child for his need for redemption if you don't communicate to him through discipline that there are moral consequences that require payment. He will never connect the dots and not understand, therefore, the need for an atoning sacrifice. What discipline does is it connects to what we've talked about elsewhere. Discipline connects to the very important law of cause and effect. We've talked about it so often in the book of Proverbs because it's really a a key pillar of biblical wisdom. It's the law that God has programmed into his creation. It defines how he typically works in this world. It's the law of sowing and reaping, and discipline plays a very important role in teaching our children this law, cause and effect. Moral actions have consequences. Some Proverbs on this topic. Proverbs 13 verse 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him, disciplines him, 
diligently. Proverbs 19, verse 18, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Proverbs 22, verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13 to 14, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You will strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Now, Proverbs teaches that this discipline is to be administered through two fundamental means. It does talk about the need for verbal correction. We find that often. The verbal discipline, the correction, the admonishment, the rebuke that must be present in describing and and showing this law of cause and effect. Do something foolish and you will be reprimanded. That is important. But it also involves the aspect of corporal punishment. That there must also be the experience of pain. Experience of pain in response to moral delinquency. And in proportion to the extent of moral delinquency, there must be an increasing amount of pain. And that is not something that is somehow wrong or destructive to the child that saves the child because to the extent that you apply it correctly, you, you introduce to your child the reality that there is payment for sin. Somehow sin must be paid for. And the sooner he understands that reality, the better off his soul will be because by the grace of God, you may be able to then point him to the Savior who is the one who takes the penalty for sin. But to the degree that you abdicate your duty on this, you set your child up to have to pay for his own sin in all eternity. Now, of course, we do not, we do not discipline out of abusive anger, but we do so out of this loving need to teach justice. Children, indeed, must understand mercy and compassion and and love, but they must also, at the earliest of ages, begin to understand the concept of righteous justice. And it is when fathers are absent, and when fathers abdicate their duty of teaching justice in the home, that is when you have injustice in the world. As these sinners, depraved as they are, never having come to terms with the law of cause and effect, get into the world, get their freedoms, and then take that lifestyle and inflict social ills on everyone else. And, and then the response is, where did this come from? What, were, where are the, what, what happened? As if to say there's no explanation. When the reality of it is, in many cases, a father wasn't present at that earliest stage, to teach what true justice is. When I see a young man treat a young lady disrespectfully, my first thought is, where's the dad? Where's the dad? Where's the dad to tell his son, you do not talk to women that way? Or when a child goes in a protest and breaks windows and sets buildings on fire, 
My thought is that child never had a dad who taught him, you don't do that. There's consequences. This is where discipline comes in, and it is an act of love. In fact, we could relate discipline to the law, the work of the law. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, we read these words. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. In the ancient Greek world, the tutor had the authority in the home to discipline the children. And the law, the act of discipline, is that tutor that leads us to Christ so that we may then be justified by faith. Again, Bauckham says this, family shepherds do not engage in corrective discipline because we believe it's efficacious for our children's salvation. We do so because it is a tool God has given us, and He expects us to employ it in the monumental task of bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, it's not that it is efficacious to save our children. Many of you have been great fathers, and you have disciplined your children, and today they're not necessarily saved. We understand that. You can't save your own children, and you can't save your children through even the most righteous administration of discipline. But discipline is the tool. Discipline is what you have in your own toolbox. What you do have is your responsibility to do what you can do on your part to at least be that tutor to point them to Christ. By failing to discipline, you throw away the tools and you have nothing left. The failure to discipline then becomes in itself a form of child abuse. And I think, as I saw, as you did on the news, so many of the the riots that took place this past year, what goes on almost nightly in Portland, and I think of how many abusive fathers stand behind those children in the streets, burning tires and throwing rocks through coffee shop windows, spraying obscene graffiti, and yelling the most hideous slogans. Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12, shows us just how much discipline is good. And it shows it in relation to us as God's own children. Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. You see, that actual or that, that, that accurate application of discipline is, uh, is a, a reflection of delight and love in the same way that the Lord does with us. He disciplines us. In fact, that comes through in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. Let me read a few words from that context of chapter 12 of Hebrews 5 to 11, where the writer says this, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline 
of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So we see that it is a love for the child's soul as we recognize the child's depravity that compels us to apply this discipline. Well, we will leave it there for this evening. Be sure next week to bring back this handout. We will finish with, the, with points four and five on this handout, and then we'll get into the next five more briefly. These are the most basic ones. There are some study questions at the back. On the last page of the handout, take these home. Some of you are already empty nesters, and you wonder, how does this apply to me? Maybe you've made a lot of mistakes, or maybe the Lord has been gracious to you, and and your children are walking with the Lord, and you enjoy that unity. Think about how you can take this material and pass it on to them. Think about what this might mean for you as a father who has failed to go to your children, even if they're grown, and to say, listen, this is what I failed to do, forgive me. Perhaps you're not a father yet. Perhaps you won't be a father. Think about how you can pass this wisdom on to others, how you can be an encouragement to new fathers or existing fathers, how you can pray, how you can even take under your influence those young men who may not have fathers, and you can become to them like a spiritual father. Think through those things. Let's let this truth sink deeply, and let's pray for this. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that at one point in our lives, as depraved as we were, seeking our own way, you had mercy on us, and you saved us. You redeemed us from enslavement to sin. You gave us new life. And now, as we sang earlier this evening, you lead us. You have taken hold of our hand, and you leadeth us. And we who enjoy that privilege as adopted children, we, we cherish this relationship that you have to us, that we call you Father, that you call us sons. You've sent your Spirit to testify to that, and in the, in the darkest of our trials, it's amazing how the Spirit prompts us to, to cry out, Abba, Father, and that relationship is so precious, and we, we, we love you for that. We pray that that would filter down into our own fathering of our own children, so that even in our imperfections and limitations, we would exhibit the kind of love that you have for us so that our children too, whether in their best of times or the darkest of valleys, would also cry out to us, Father, help. Make us those kinds of dads. We pray so that we could we could accurately, to the best of our ability, reflect the truth that you are to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.